0: Uh, As you might have gathered, we're uh, starting a new series in the book of Romans in chapters 9 to 11, uh, Apostle Paul's letter uh, to the church in Rome. Uh, But as part of trying to kind of get our heads around those chapters, we need to really understand the context that those chapters come in. Uh, Paul's writing to a church composed of both uh, Jewish and non-Jewish or Gentile believers. And in chapters 1 to uh, 8, Paul has explained the, the great human dilemma Uh, The great human dilemma of sin, our rejection and our rebellion against God. And everyone's included. There's no one who's singled out for special treatment. We're all in that position. And so because of our sin, all people everywhere, uh, on their own, stand under wrath, God's wrath, and we're headed for condemnation. But the good news of the gospel, the wonderful news of the gospel, is that God is saving people from sin and all its consequences. For, if you remember, uh, chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then the Gentile. So just like everyone uh, is under sin, everyone is saved through the gospel. Now the gospel, which was foreshadowed or, or promised beforehand in the Old Testament scriptures, is the fulfilment of all of God's salvation purposes. And it's the good news that uh, Jesus Christ, he's the Messiah, he's Israel's promised king. And the good news is is that he's not just Israel's Messiah, he's the Saviour and he's the Lord of the world. And through his sin-bearing death and his death-defeating resurrection, we're justified or made right with God, we're forgiven, we're reconciled, we're set free from the power and penalty of sin when we trust in Christ as our Lord. We receive the Holy Spirit who gives and empowers new life in us in Christ and we're destined for eternal glory in a renewed creation. And so Romans chapter 8 concludes with this absolute joyful certainty that those in Christ are God's beloved children and that nothing in creation will ever, ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the end of chapter 8. That's the gospel that we proclaim. That's the gospel for our troubled world. That's the gospel for us. This gospel, however, raises questions. Uh, problems even, objections. Now Paul uh, addresses many throughout his letter. If you come to the night where you read through, you might be able to spot some of those. But in chapters 9 to 11, he particularly deals with questions regarding the faithfulness of God. You see, if the gospel is the power of salvation, if it is the fulfilment of all of God's promises, if Jesus is Israel's Messiah, and they are his people, why are so many people rejecting Jesus? And why has their place apparently been taken over by the Gentiles who aren't God's people? Chapters 9 to 11, uh, it's a great celebration of the power, the faithfulness, the grace and the glory of God but it also explores complex issues that can be tricky to navigate and personally challenging. We can have that slide off now, I think. Thanks. Now when we come across these tricky and challenging issues, there are a few ways that we can respond. We've got a few options. We can just ignore them, right? Uh, That's often the easiest response because it feels like we avoid the difficulty or the hurt or the division some of these tricky issues might cause. That's the first way. The second way we can respond is to reinterpret them. That is, we make God's word say something it's not. Now that can even come from good motives, right? We're actually uh, trying to uh, avoid conclusions that seem hurtful or too hard to understand or or, or damaging even. The third response is we we can listen listen to these tricky issues. This is when we do our best to read God, God's word carefully, humbly and honestly and we submit to its implications. That's how God wants us to approach the scriptures. Now it doesn't mean we'll always agree on everything. It doesn't mean we'll always get things right. But that attitude towards the scriptures coupled with a sense of love, and kindness, and patience with each other will help bring the maturity amongst us that God really desires, even when we do disagree. So as we come to this series, as we we sort of grapple with some of the issues, it's okay to feel the tension, right? Let's not be afraid of it, and let's let's not be afraid to talk about these things. Uh, to wrestle with the complexities of God's word. And let's do it prayerfully, humbly, in love, and let's do it together, in church, in our small groups, during the week. And so often, as we do that, God will actually draw us closer to each other, and he'll deepen our love and our community and our understanding of him. So in a moment, Luke's going to come and read our Bible reading for tonight. Let me pray for uh, for him and for us as he does that. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, for your power, your glory, your majesty and your grace. As we come to your word tonight, by your spirit, please work in our hearts and in our minds. Help us hear it clearly, to understand it and to submit to its implications. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks, Luke.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Luke. Uh, I'm going to be reading Genesis chapter 21, uh, verse 8 to 13. Uh, Genesis chapter 25, verse 21 to 26. And Romans chapter 9, verse 1 to 13. The child grew and was weaned. On the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. This is Genesis uh, chapter 25. Isaac prayed to the Lord on on behalf of his wife, because she was childless. The Lord answered His prayer, and his wife, Rebecca became pregnant. The babies jostled each other um, within her, and she said, "Why is this happening to me?" So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, "Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will, be, will within you be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the other will serve and the older will serve the younger." When the time came for her to give birth, uh, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebecca gave birth to them. So this is Romans chapter 9 now. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the defined glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended of Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children, uh, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham, Abraham's offspring. For so this was how the promise was started. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at, that, uh, at the same time by our, fa- uh, by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's promise in election might stand, not by work but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated."
0: Thanks, Luke. It'd be great if you could have your outline there. On one side is the passage, which we'll be stepping through, so it'd be great to have that handy. And on the other side uh, is an outline which you can jot some notes down if you'd like to do that. Now, when people hear the Gospel message, uh, they often respond with concerns or objections. You may have heard of some of those. Uh, it's, It's too exclusive. It's repressive. It's ridiculous. Well, it was the same uh, in a, the Apostle Paul's time. As he spread the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, he ca- encountered objections of one kind or another. Now he addresses some of these uh, objections in the earlier chapters and he, he addresses another in our passage this evening. Uh, the uh, question, one regarding the trustworthiness of God's word. Now let's begin by hearing how he expresses it in verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. The problem that he's alluding to is a large number of Jewish people who haven't believed the gospel. Now, all the apostles and the majority of the early Christians, they were all Jewish, but many rejected Christ. Have you ever noticed how few Jewish people there are in our churches? Have you ever wondered, why is that? Has it ever bothered you? We've either, I think, become used to this fact that we don't see many Jewish people in our churches or the fact just hasn't crossed our minds, right? But for Paul, this was a problem. And it wasn't just a philosophical or intellectual problem. It was deeply personal. And as we come to these chapters, it's worth remembering that we're not dealing here with just philosophical and complex ideas that we just kind of got to get our heads around. There are deeply personal and pastoral realities related to what we're reading about. And for Paul it was a great agony to see the Israelites rejecting Christ. They were his own people It caused him great sorrow and unceasing anguish to see them day after day through city after city turning away from the gospel, rejecting Jesus as he preached. Because as he says, those who reject Christ are cursed. They're cut off. They're condemned. You see, there's only one person who can save sinners from God's coming wrath and that's Jesus. Jesus. And if you're cut off from him, you're like the astronaut uh, whose line to the spaceship has been cut and you're just drifting off without hope. And so Paul is so upset, he's so distressed, verse 3, that he, he wishes he could take their place. He wishes that he himself could be cut off from Christ, that he would be damned if it meant his people could be saved. He'd do that for his people. Can you imagine that? Uh, Moses, uh, he wished the same thing. He pleaded with God on behalf of Israel after the, the golden calf. God, blot me out instead. But Paul can't take their place any more than Moses could. There's only one person who can do that. That's Christ. And he already has. He he bore our sin in our place on the cross. And the only way anyone can be saved is by trusting in him. It's worth pausing, I think, for a moment, as we hear Paul's agony for his lost people. Is that how we feel? Do we share his heart for the people that we love, for our community, for our city, for our world? What would we be prepared to sacrifice for their salvation? Will the Israelite rejection of Christ is agony for Paul But there's even a deeper problem that it raises. The question of God's trustworthiness. So Israel are not just Paul's brethren, his people. They are God's people. God said to them, out of all the nations of the world, you are my treasure. You are the child I love. Out of Egypt I called my son. That's what Paul means when he says, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Not only that, his glory was manifest among Israel. He was present among Israel like he was nowhere else in the world. And he committed to himself like he committed himself to no other. By covenant he bound himself to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, then all of Israel at Mount Sinai. And there they received the law. And so they knew how to obey him and worship him. God was known amongst Israel like nowhere else on the planet. And they received God's saving promises through their father Abraham, promises of land, of nationhood, of blessing. It was to them who God promised, you will be my people and I will be your God. And when all these promises came to fulfilment, they came to fulfilment in Jesus, the promised Messiah. He was God's son. He was filled with God's glory. He fulfilled the law, the covenant, the temple worship. In him, all God's promises were yes. And Jesus was an Israelite. He was one of them. So as deep as Paul's anguish is, there's a deeper problem. If God's love and his purposes were so centred on Israel, if he had committed himself to them like that, why have so many rejected Christ? Why? It doesn't mean that all of God's purposes, his promises, his plans have come to nothing. Has, to use Paul's language, has God's word failed? God says in Isaiah 55 that his word never returns empty but always achieves the purposes for which he sent it, right? Is that just not true? Has it returned empty? Has it failed? And if it is true... Well, there's no good explanation. It's either the fire or the frying pan, right? They're your choices. Because it means God just isn't powerful enough to deliver. Look, God had good intentions, sure, but at the end of the day, he just couldn't execute. Or it means that God was powerful enough to deliver, but he just didn't. He reneged He's gone back on his word. He lied. He changed his mind. Whatever the reason, if God's word has failed, it's a big problem. It was a big problem then and it's a big problem for us now because it means we can't trust God's promises. Romans 8 says, There is no condemnation for those in Christ. If God's word has failed, you can't trust that. It says, our present suffering cannot compare to the glory that will be revealed in us. Can't believe that either. It says, in all things God works for the good of those who love him. If God isn't trustworthy, you can't trust that promise either. It says, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can stand between us will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God's word has failed, you can't believe that. If God's word has failed, you can't rely on anything that God has said, any of his promises, and really there's no point to any of this. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if the whole nation of Israel had come to Christ? How wonderful but it hasn't turned out that way. Nevertheless, Paul says, verse 6, it is not as though God's word has failed. Well, Paul, how can you say that? The evidence seems to be contradicting what you're saying. Now, listen to the explanation. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Well. Back, 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 please. Thank you. Let's just back, get back into the moment. There's two uses of the word Israel in that verse, in uh, verse 6, two different meanings. Now, the first refers uh, to the name God gave to Jacob, that God chooses to commit himself. They're his people. They're the true Israel they will receive his blessings, they will turn to Christ and ultimately be saved. Not all Israelites are Israelites. Pretty edgy thing for Paul to say. Imagine he tweeted that. Cue laughter. <laughs> and that's what he, he was doing, right? Metaphorically, when he wrote this letter, he's telling them, you're not all Israelites. We can have that down now. He's saying someone might be able to trace their uh, line on Ancestry.com back to Jacob, back to Abraham, but that doesn't necessarily make them one of God's people. It doesn't mean they'll automatically receive God's promises and blessings. That's not how God does things. God chooses. He chooses he will commit to. He chooses who will receive his promises and blessings. And that's why some Jewish people have turned to Christ and others have not. Now in case someone thinks this is kind of some lame attempt by Paul to explain why the gospel isn't working, he presents two cases from the Old uh, Testament to prove his claim. And the first starts in verse 7. As he says, Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Uh, We heard uh, the readings before, but just to summarise, Abraham had two sons. He had uh, Isaac and Ishmael. God's promise applied to one but not the other. And no Israelites would have regarded Ishmael and his descendants as God's people. They believe God only committed himself to Isaac and his descendants. So really Paul already has proved his point. Membership of God's people isn't a birthright. His blessings are given to those to whom he directs his promise those he chooses to commit himself to. And he chose Sarah's son Isaac, his descendants, and not Hagar's son, Ishmael. That's proof one. Now, if you've been following closely, you might have already kind of anticipated the counter-argument. Uh, Ishmael's uh, mother, Hagar, she was Egyptian. She was a Gentile, a, a slave woman. Ishmael was never going to be an Israelite, Right? Well, Paul deals with this objection in verses 10 to 13 and he shows with even greater clarity that it is solely God's choice who receives his salvation promises. See, Isaac had two sons uh, with his wife, wife Rebecca, uh, Jacob and Esau. And See that in verse 10. They had the same father and the same mother and they were twins, right? So they even had the same conception. In terms of biology, nothing to separate them. Again, God's promise applied to one and not the other, to Jacob and not to Esau. And it's clear that it's God's free choice who he chooses. It's, it's got nothing to do with them, the relative merits of either of them. And if you read their story in Genesis, you'll see it really has nothing to do with the relative merits of either of them. But listen, Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac, Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. See, God didn't even choose the older one. And he didn't even choose the better one. And he chose them before they had faith, right? Before they even responded to him in any way. See, God doesn't just like, wind up history like a clock and let things run. He doesn't, he doesn't just deal the cards and, 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 and have it all kind of play out how it'll play out. He's active in all things. And God's purpose, God's purposes in salvation work by election or selection he actively chooses. His people are those he calls, those whom he elects, those whom he gives his promises to. So it's not according to ancestry that God achieves his purposes. It's not according to a person's accomplishments either. They're CV. He doesn't save a person because they go to church, they're high achievers, They serve the community or give to the poor. That's not how he saves people. And he doesn't save people according to a person's relative moral goodness because they're kind and they're sincere. Good things, but that's not why God saves. You see, God made his choice before the twins had done anything right, good or bad. And he doesn't save because he looked forward in time and foresaw that someone would have faith and made his decision to save them based on that. Paul makes it very clear here and in other places that God's choice happens before we do anything and it's not based on anything in us. This is from verse 16, a bit later on. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort but on God's mercy, his choice. God calls one and not the other. And it's his free decision, his initiative, his sovereign mercy. Verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Whoa, full on, right? Paul here is quoting the prophet Malachi. Now in context, Malachi is talking about the nations descended from Jacob and Esau, Judah and Edom. He's not talking about individuals here. So the language here isn't really about God's uh, personal feelings towards a person. It's the language of election. God chose one and not the other. However, while it's true that Malachi was talking about nations, the wider context that we're reading here, the argument is about individuals. Paul is using the text to explain why some Israelites turn to Christ and others do not, because God, Jesus. Now, this teaching uh, is called the doctrine of election. Right, doctrine is just a fancy word for teaching. So, the teaching of election, and it can be hard to understand, but also I think hard to accept. I remember when I was investigating Christianity as a 20-year-old, I found this really hard to get my head around it and and, and hard to accept. Now, one way that we can deal with these difficulties is by saying, look, I'm on board with the Christianity thing but not with Paul. This is just what he says, right? Just what he thinks. Now, let's just put aside that attitude to Scripture for a moment because that's a little concerning this is actually all through the scriptures. All through the scriptures and it's on the lips of Jesus. Uh, one example, uh, John 6. Uh, many of Jesus' followers have begun to desert him because they actually can't accept some of the hard things that he's saying and Jesus did say some very hard things. And listen to what Jesus says to explain why it's all happening from John 6:65. 6, all this you think this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. He's saying people can only come to him because God has chosen them and enabled them to do so by his Holy Spirit. And so he's enabled some but not others. God works his purposes by election. God calls, he commits, he shows mercy to those whom he chooses. So we shouldn't think God's word has failed because all of Israel hasn't turned to Christ. What's happening is completely under God's sovereign control and completely consistent with what he's said and promised. That's the argument. Now, of course, in answering one objection, Paul has almost certainly created another. It's probably arising in your minds now. And the new objection is that if this is the way God operates, that's simply unjust. The fact that God uses some and not others is just. Unfair. See, Paul is like the doctor that cures your sore toe by punching you in the face, right? Your face is so sore you've forgotten about your toe. Because we're not all thinking about how God's word has failed anymore. We're thinking about this new objection. Now, if that's your reaction, there is one piece of good news. It means you've understood exactly what Paul is saying. Have a look at verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Now Sam is preaching next week and he's going to deal mainly with this objection. But I do want to say just a few things and not leave it completely hanging but do come back next week. First, first thing I want to say, some people have abandoned this idea of election because it leads to this unthinkable conclusion and it is unthinkable that God is unjust. However, let me say we shouldn't abandon what is true to avoid an apparent conclusion, right? We shouldn't abandon what is true to avoid an apparent conclusion. It doesn't necessarily follow because that because this is how it is, God is unjust. Second, No one is in a neutral position before God, right? I think that's where some of our objections arise, right? God should save more people. He should do that. Well, actually, we're all guilty. No one actually deserves God's mercy. None of us actually deserve to be chosen or saved. Third, before we presume to put God in the dock, we just need to pause a moment. Are we bringing our own measure of how we think God should act to the table here? If I was God, this is how I would do it, and therefore this is how God should do it. Are we in a? Is anybody in a position to tell God that? No, because God is God and we are not. He's not bound by us. He's not bound by high achievers, to sincere people, to kind and generous people, to religious people. He's not bound to do anything because we think that he should. God is free to commit to anyone he chooses. And ultimately, we have other questions. Who? Who does God choose and why some and not the others? I don't think we know the answer to that question. And we'll explore some of that in the coming weeks a bit more. But I won't say any more... Uh, What I will do now is share three implications, I think, of tonight's passage that play. There's plenty of implications and I won't cover all of them but here are are three for us to think about. Firstly, how do we uh, reconcile, how do we hold together God's sovereignty and our choice, right? God's choice, our choice. If God chooses who's to be saved, what does that say about our own choices? How, How do I reconcile that with the fact that I know that I make my choices freely. And the Bible says that too, right? We have agency. We make free choices. It's my responsibility to trust in Christ and be saved. And so, is it God's choice or is it mine? Well, it's a bit like Melbourne weather, really. Is it sunny or is it rainy? It's both. Hard tacos or soft tacos? Why not both? It's all true. It's all true. Yes, God chooses. But we do need to freely respond to God of our own will by trusting in Christ. And we'll see a quote on the screen where Paul says exactly that in the next chapter. From chapter 10 if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved or it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved, right? However, at the same time the scriptures also say we can't trust in Christ without the work of the Spirit who moves according to the sovereign will of God. Now how all this fits together I don't fully understand. And the passage doesn't tell us either. Like I said, it has things to say about how God works but Paul's not actually trying to join all the dots for us. He's not trying to explain how God's sovereignty and human free will fit together. Sometimes the dots join and sometimes they don't. However, it's when we try too hard to resolve apparent conflicts that we actually start to run into problems, right? Right? It means we often end up uh, affirming one but denying the other. Is God three or is God one? Is Is Jesus God or is he human? Our choice, God's choice. We need to hold them together. We need to do our best to live with attention, to affirm all of what the Bible says, even if it's hard to understand how it all fits together. However, remember this. God will never, ever, ever turn away someone who trusts in Jesus. He will always have mercy on those who want him to have mercy on them. So the best thing to do is not try and work out who's chosen and who's not because I know that's what we're going to try and do next. The best thing to do isn't to worry about whether someone you know is chosen or not because we, we don't know. The best thing to do is to pray, to share with them the good news of Jesus and we do so knowing that God's love and mercy is bigger than we could ever imagine. Now I don't have all the answers but what I do know is that this teaching is good news. And this needs to be said because sometimes we can come to passages like this and read them as bad news. But it's not. It's actually wonderful news because it means salvation is completely dependent on God and not me. It's his choice, his initiative, his rich grace and mercy. You see, there are two ways it can work. God's salvation can come by His free choice and that means it's by His mercy. And that's what mercy is, isn't it, right? It's a free choice. Mercy isn't bound uh, with, with who I am or what I do. That's what mercy is, right? It's undeserved. It's a blessing freely given by the mercy giver. I mean, who can stand up here tonight and say, I deserve mercy. Well, you can't. Because then it wouldn't be mercy. It would be what you deserve. It would be justice, right? And that's the second way it can work. Justice. It's either mercy or it's justice, getting what we deserve. But what happens if God treats us with justice instead of mercy? What happens if salvation is actually dependent on us? What we actually do? What we deserve? Well, this is what we deserve. The full wrath of God. What we all need is mercy. And that's what God has freely given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. His rich his sweet mercy. God chose me. God loves me not because of who I am or because, of anything, or because of anything I am or anything I've done or haven't done. God loves me because He loves me. Final implication. This teaching is good news because it means that God's word hasn't failed. So yes, there really is no condemnation for those in Christ. There is none now, there is none tomorrow and there never will be any condemnation for those in Christ. And yes, our present sufferings, whatever they are, cannot compare to the glory that will be revealed in us. And yes, God really does work uh, in all things for the good of those who love him. And yes, nothing in all creation will ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All these precious promises have been purchased by the blood of Christ. They've been sealed by the Holy Spirit and they are guaranteed forever by the sovereign love Power and faithfulness of God, whose word will never ever fail. Let's pray, Father God. There are things in your word sometimes that are hard to understand. Father, I pray that you'd help us as individuals and as a community keep on wrestling with your word and submitting to it. And Father, we, we pray that we would see this teaching tonight for what it is. Wonderful news of your faithfulness and your grace
1: and your sovereign love. Amen.